And so tonight we're going to start on chapter 11 in our pilgrimage through Paul's letter to the church at Rome. And I will be reading from verse 1 through ver Wait a minute. It's Ben. It's too early to fall asleep. I haven't even started preaching. <laughs> Sit up now. You ready? Okay, Nick. You okay? I have them right, don't I? Okay. I don't know what I'd do, Nick, if you didn't wear blue shirts all the time. Uh, we're going to be reading verses 1 through 10 of chapter 11. I'll ask the congregation to stand for the reading of the Word of God. I say then, has God cast away His people? Certainly not. For I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not cast away His people whom He foreknew. Or do you not know what the Scripture says of Elijah? How he pleads with God against Israel, saying, Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what does the divine response say to him? I have reserved for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Even so, at this present time, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. And if by grace, then it is no longer of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. But if it is of works, it is no longer grace. Otherwise, work is no longer work. What then? Israel has not obtained what it seeks, but the elect have obtained it, and the rest were blinded. Just as it is written, God has given them a spirit of stupor, eyes that they should not see, and ears that they should not hear to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a recompense to them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they do not see and bow down their back always. Again, dear friends, what you've just heard is the unvarnished Word of God, that Word that comes from His eternal wisdom which is binding upon our consciences and upon our hearts. Please be seated. Let us pray. Again, O Lord, we cry out to Thee for help, for we are not able to plumb the depths of those things that You set forth for our benefit in Your Word. May your Spirit accompany that word tonight, that we may be changed by it, because it is your word 
and because your word is truth. For we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm sure you're all aware of one of the most controversial subdivisions of the science of systematic theology is that subdivision that we describe as eschatology. Eschatology is the science or the study of the last things. It has to do with the future prophecies of the Bible, including both the future prophecies that are found in the pages of the Old Testament and also the prophecies of the future that are contained in the New Testament. It was one once observed by one biblical scholar that two-thirds of the doctrinal material of the New Testament focuses in one way or another on eschatology, on the future of the kingdom of God. And we see the church in our day divided among various competing camps of post-millennialism and pre-millennialism and amillennialism and pro-millennialism, that's for people who are for it, pan-millennialism, who say it'll all pan out in the end, preterism, partial preterism, dispensationalism, and all the rest. The bestseller lists always include works that deal with eschatology, such as the late great planet Earth, and now this Left Behind series that has swept through the fiction market of America. Now, I say that for this reason. How we understand eschatology is to a large degree connected to how we understand chapter 11 of Paul's letter to the Romans, because this is Paul's most complete teaching on the subject of the future of the nation Israel. And again, so much of the disputes about eschatology in our time focus on that question of what, if anything, is still to happen with ethnic Israel, the Jews that still exist in the world today. I can remember in the decade of the 60s when the Six-Day War occurred and Jerusalem was recaptured by the Israelis, and I'll speak more about that later on in this text, that biblical scholars were saying about that event that the time had come where theologians were reading the Bible in one hand and their newspapers in the other hand. And in fact, since 1948, with the reconstitution of the Jewish state of Israel, there has been a strong concentration of interest about the question, are we living in that last generation? Are we living in the end times? And again, so many of the answers to the, those questions may be found locked within this 11th chapter. And so I approach chapter 11 with a certain spirit of fear and intrepidation because there are some really naughty problems, naughty, K-N-O-T-T-Y, not N-A-U-G-H-T-Y, 
found in this text, and I will try to point those out as we encounter them. But let's begin now at the beginning of the chapter and read verse 1 again where the apostle, as he has been doing so often throughout this epistle, he begins with a rhetorical question, which question he is quick to answer in his characteristic emphatic terms. And herein is the question. I say then, has God cast away His people? That's the question that he's focusing on. Remember earlier on he said that he took a vow and said that that he was swearing to his people that his concern for his people according to the flesh, katasarka, was his concern for ethnic Israel, for the Jewish nation that in Old Testament times had been called out of paganism and set apart as a nation, established as a theocratic nation with God as their ultimate king, and they were given a mandate and a destiny. It's been said by some historians, how odd of God to choose the Jews. I believe it was George Bernard Shaw who once asked the theologian of his day for some certain proof of the existence of God. And the theologian replied to Shaw, I can prove the existence of God with one or two words, the Jews. The history of Israel all the way back to Abraham and up to the present day is a striking testimony to God's providential government of human history and especially of redemptive history. You know, it's a remarkable thing when you consider just a little bit of the history of ancient Israel, that after the Romans conquered Jerusalem in 70 A.D., and the Jews went into the diaspora, dispersed, sent out of their homeland, and were sent to the four corners of the earth, that after almost 2,000 years of having been in exile from their homeland, never, ever lost their ethnic and national identity. So that it is axiomatic among Jews today to say to one another, next year in Jerusalem. For 2,000 years, this people that would not be made extinct from the globe have dreamed of returning to Mount Zion. We have to take that seriously throughout church history and even to this day. When I was a little boy, there were two days during the year where my mother gave her blessing for me to skip school. One day of the year that I could not go to school was the opening day of the Pittsburgh Pirates season at Forbes Field. 
the other day I was allowed to stay home from school was on St. Patrick's Day because in Pittsburgh they had the parade, the Irishman's Parade, the Orangeman's Parade. My grandfather marched in the Orangeman's Parade. And all day long on St. Patrick's Day in Pittsburgh, the disc jockeys would concentrate on Irish music. My mother used to sing Irish lullabies to me to put me to sleep each night. Now, I know that that's the one day in the year where everybody else in the world becomes Irish wannabes. But ours was authentic, and I would hear stories of my great-grandfather migrating to this country during the potato famine and settling in Pittsburgh, coming from Ireland. But how long ago was that? It was in the middle of the 18th, the middle of the 19th century, excuse me. And I still am aware of those roots in my own family that go back to the old sod. But I don't sit around and dream about next year in Dublin. I've been assimilating. I don't think of myself as an Irishman. I think of myself as an American. Don't we all? This is the melting pot, except for the Jews. They still have this unquenchable awareness, consciousness of their roots, of their ethnic and national identity. And that's what Paul is wrestling with here in chapter 11. And he's already told us about how Israel missed their Messiah, how they had a zeal for religion, but not according to truth, that they sought the kingdom of God through their own works, they sought it through the law, and they missed the gospel, and how that Jesus came to his own, and his own received him not. And now he starts this chapter 11 with the question, what do we come there? What is our conclusion? Does this mean then that God has cast away His people? Has God taken His people, that He made a people out of nothing, and now discarded them? Has He now thrown them away? Has God now exercised a full and final rejection of the Jewish people? That's the question. Let me ask it again. Has God exercised a full and final rejection of the Jews? Has He cast away? his own people. How does Paul answer the question? By no means. Don't even think about it. That God has not categorically rejected Old Testament Israel. Now listen to the strange proof that he offers to uh, argue 
that indeed God has not cast away His people, and he argues from the lesser to the greater, and his argument chooses as his exhibit A what he considered to be the least of the lesser, indeed himself. Look what he says, certainly not, for I also am an Israelite. What's he saying? Hey, if God has rejected all of the Jews, if He's cast off His whole people totally and finally, then that means He would have had to have cast me off too. But I am an Israelite. I am from the people and the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. My name is Saul the first king of Israel is from the tribe of Benjamin. And now Paul cites his pedigree where he gives a little brief inclusion of his genealogical background, tracing his roots back to Abraham, back to the tribe of Benjamin. I'm a Jew, he says, and I have not been cast away. God has not cast away His people whom He foreknew. And the force of that, I believe, is this. If I could read it this way, God has not cast away His elect. God is incapable of casting away or rejecting a people that he foreknew from the foundation of the world, the elect that Paul has spoken of from chapter 8 through chapter 9 into chapter 10, and now he brings that election concept right down to the question of the nature of Israel. He began this book by saying, not all of those who were of Israel were Israel. He argued that not everybody that was circumcised was automatically saved, but only those who were circumcised in their heart. Not all of the seed of Abraham were the chosen from the foundation of the world. Ishmael was of the seed of Abraham, but he remained a foreigner to God's redemptive purposes. In Isaac shall my seed be called. And so Paul puts the brakes on here and said, don't come to the conclusion after all of the weighty things I've said of the rejection of the Jews, of their Messiah, of the dreadful things that have taken place by people missing the kingdom, missing the grace of God, despising the gospel, and trying to make it into the kingdom through the works of the law. Don't conclude from that that God has rejected His people totally and completely because I'm part of that people. Do you not know what the Scripture says of Elijah? How he pleads with God against Israel, against his own people, 
saying, Lord, they've killed your prophets. They've torn down your altars. And I, I alone am left, and they seek my life. This cry from the prophet Elijah came in the midst of one of the worst periods, if not the worst period of apostasy in the history of Old Testament Israel. He made this plea. while Ahab was king. And Ahab ruled with his consort Jezebel. And Jezebel was a priestess of the cult of Baal. And how using her influence with the king, Jezebel invited the pagan idolaters in to the royal house and persuaded her husband to sanction this idolatrous religion in the high places of Israel. And so under Ahab and Jezebel, a massive persecution was instituted against any who would speak in favor of the classical religion of the Jews. And in this iconoclastic movement of paganism, the sacred altars of the Jewish people were physically destroyed. They were dismantled. They were burned. They were turned to rubble. And in their places, shrines were established to the pagan god Baal. You remember the classic encounter that Elijah had with the prophets of the priest of Baal on the mountain when he challenged them to use their power and to have fire come down from heaven. Do you remember that? How they put this altar on the mountain and then Elijah stepped back and said, go ahead and call upon your gods to ignite the fire of sacrifice on the altar, and they prayed, and they wept, and they called, and heaven was silent. And Elijah began to mock them as they spent hour after hour pleading with Baal to make his power known in the nation. And Elijah says, call a little louder. Maybe he's sleeping. Maybe he went out for a walk. And the more they called and cut themselves and went through all of their gyrations of ritual, there was no response. And then Elijah ordered that the altar be doused with water. And after it was saturated, he prayed. And the Lord God omnipotent sent down fire from heaven. It consumed the altar. But in the midst of this hellish reversion to paganism, in the midst of this apostasy, 
The soul of Elijah was tried to the uttermost. He was exhausted with living in daily persecution and being a fugitive from the power of the throne. And in the midst of this apostasy, he cried out to God. He said, oh, God, I can't take it anymore. Nobody cares. Everywhere I look, the people are rushing to the pagan altars. They're killing your prophets. They're tearing down your altars. And I'm the only one left. I can't find anybody, anywhere, who still worships you, the only true God. I call that the Elijah Syndrome. A syndrome that true believers experience when they're surrounded by apostasy. What is apostasy? Apostasy is not the same thing as paganism. For somebody to be an apostate, they have to have at some point renounced paganism and professed the only true God. The only place that apostasy can take place, dear friends, is in the house of God. And people can become apostate when they repudiate the faith that they once professed. Whole churches can become apostate when churches denounce essential truths of the Christian faith, they're apostate churches. Denominations, Protestant denominations, can become apostate. But even in those bodies that are marked by apostasy, the church I grew up in, the church in which I was ordained, I believe today, is an apostate denomination. It celebrates the imaging of pagan goddesses. It sanctions abortion on demand. Its official church councils have argued that it's not necessary to affirm the deity of Christ or His atonement to be a pastor in that denomination. When a church does that, it's apostate. Does that mean there aren't any Christians there? No. I don't think there should be. I think when a group becomes apostate, it is our moral obligation to leave it and to distance ourselves from it, not to break fellowship over every little difference of doctrine. But when real apostasy manifests itself, it's time to shake the dust off your feet and get out. But not every Christian does that. And there are multitudes of Christians still working, still striving, still laboring, still preaching within apostate bodies in this world. But those who do that sometimes experience the Elijah syndrome, and they feel like 
They're the only ones left. But when Elijah uttered his complaint to God and cried out to being all alone and saying, they seek my life, Paul asked the question again, what is the divine response to Elijah? I have reserved for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Hold it, Elijah. There's not just one of you. There's not just five of you. Not even just a hundred of you. But I have reserved for myself. Not 7,000 have kept themselves from apostasy by their own efforts and their own merit. That's not what he's saying. I have kept for myself 7,000 within that godless nation. Some may be in the court of Ahab and Jezebel. Some perhaps in areas that you would never guess you would find one of my own. But in that nation, there's 7,000 of them that are mine, that I have reserved, I have preserved, I have kept them from apostasy. Now, I trust and pray that nobody in this room is apostate, has repudiated the faith. And I, I believe that I'm not an apostate. But the only reason I can give that I'm not an apostate, and the only reason I can give that you aren't an apostate, is because the Lord God in His sweet grace and mercy has reserved you. He put your name on the reservation list. And He has kept you from falling away. I believe in the perseverance of the saints only because I believe in the preservation of the saints. Because the Lord God in His grace preserves His people. Even so, he says, at this very time, at this present time, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. Let's unpack that phrase for just a second. You hear that concept throughout the Old Testament where God speaks of preserving a remnant. If you go to a rug store and they're having a remnant sale, you're not buying whole rugs. You're buying what's left over after the other rugs have been trimmed, the scraps that remain, the seed that is left after the field has been plowed, the dregs that are found in the bottom of the cup, the loose ends 
that seemed to be fit only for the trash barrel, to be cast out and thrown away, the stump that is left after the tree has been cut down. That's the chief metaphor for the people of God. That's who we are, the dregs that God reserves because of election. He has preserved His remnant, which He has determined to redeem from the foundation of the world. That's why I know that the church of Jesus Christ will never be erased from the face of this earth. Individual parishes may fall, whole denominations may crumble, but God will preserve His elect. He will preserve His remnant in every generation. You will never be asked to stand alone in a dying world because God has a people who cannot fail. Remember that the church belongs to Christ. It is His church. It is His bride. And the bride has been given to the Son by the Father. Do you remember the last prayers of Jesus in the upper room before He went to the cross? I pray for the ones that you have given to me. And I thank you that not one of those whom you have given to me has been lost save the son of perdition, who was the son of perdition from the beginning, referring to Judas. But none of the elect whom you've given to me have been lost. Keep them. Preserve them. I pray for them. I pray for my church. I don't pray for the world. I pray for my sheep. Father, that you would reserve them until that day. The remnant is a remnant according to election, and it is a remnant according to the election of grace. And if it is by grace, then it is no longer of works. Those two concepts, as we have seen throughout this epistle, are mutually exclusive. If you earn it, it's not grace. If you deserve it, it's not grace. If you merit it, it's not grace. Grace, by definition, is unmerited, unearned, undeserved. And if it is by works, if it is earned, if it is deserved, if it is by merit, then it is no longer of grace. 
See how simple Paul makes it? If it's grace, it's not earned. If it's earned, it's not grace. It's one or the other. And our only hope in heaven and earth is not from our works, but from that grace that remains grace. What then? Another question. Verse 7. Israel has not obtained what it seeks. That is the entire nation, the Jewish people as a whole. And I have to say here, in anticipation for some of the issues that come forward later, that it seems to me abundantly clear, at least at this point in the text, following on Romans 8, 9, and 10, that when Paul speaks of Israel, he's talking about ethnic Israel, not spiritual Israel. He's talking about the Jewish people who were his kinsmen according to the flesh. And we see it here. What then? Israel has not obtained what it seeks, but the elect have obtained it. That is, within Israel, the remnant in that people have obtained it. And the rest were blinded. Let me move quickly here. As he quotes the Old Testament again, just as it is written, God has given them a spirit of stupor, eyes that they should not see, ears that they should not hear to this very day. The reason why the nation did not find what they sought was because they were blind. And the reason why they were blind and they were groping in the darkness is because God made them blind. And their blindness was a punishment for their sin. They didn't want to see the things of God. And God, as He does throughout redemptive history, in His poetic justice, when He gives people over to their sins, He abandons them to their own sinful desire. You don't want to hear the Word of God? The Word of God bores you? If you don't want to hear the Word of God, be careful. Because if you don't want to hear it, God will make you deaf. And you'll never hear it. You don't want to see the kingdom of God? Be careful. Whatever you see in vagueness now will be taken away. And if you're not alive and energetic to the things of the Spirit of God, and your soul is not excited by these things, be careful that God doesn't visit you with the spirit of lethargy to take from you whatever weak zeal you presently have. When God does that, it's always a punishment for the evil inclinations of the people. And then he cites David with these words, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a recompense to them let their eyes be darkened so that they do not see. 
and bow down their back always. You know what, David? He's talking here about the enemies of the kingdom of God. Oh, how we love the 23rd Psalm, don't we? He has prepared a table before me in the presence of my enemies. That idea refers to the table of the banquet feast, the table of blessing, a table that is prepared by God himself that's public and visible to the enemies of the kingdom. That's what David said. He's anointed my head with oil. My cup is running over because God has prepared this table. Luther looked at that imagery of the Old Testament. He said, ultimately, the table that the Lord God in His grace that He has bestowed upon the nation Israel is the table of His Word. He has spread the banquet feast with the oracles of God. The supreme advantage that God gave to Israel was His Word. He didn't give it to the Assyrians. He didn't give it to the Babylonians. He didn't give it to the Akkadians. He gave His Word to Israel. They had the oracles of God. Luther said that was what was spread on the table. And David saw how his enemies hated the Word of God. David saw how his enemies hated the kingdom of God, how they hated the church in its Old Testament manifestation. And he said, God, make their table a snare, a trap. That when they come to that table and they see the sumptuous food that had been placed upon the table, so inviting, so attractive, like the wild animal whose trap has been baited with meat. And when that animal comes and pounces on the meat, he finds his neck in a noose or his body in a cage. Let the table be a snare. Let it be a trap. Let the Word of God be a hammer on the heads of those who hate it. Remember the old poem? Hammer away, you hostile hands. Your hammers break. God's anvil stands. Again, Luther, looking at this text, said, it's like a flower in the field whose nectar is used to be making honey for the bee. 
But that same part of the flower, when tasted by the spider, is poison and killed. To those who are being saved, the Word of God is sweetness and honey, more precious than silver and gold. But for those who perish, it is poison. May it be for you, dear friends, nothing but sweetness, nothing but honey, that you may feast on the table that God has prepared for you and reserved for you from the foundation of the world. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have reserved for yourself a remnant, a remnant, that there will always be a remnant, that we are never left to labor alone in your vineyard. We thank you for the church that you have called out of the world and that you have blessed with your word. Let us come to the feast of that word that we may hunger and thirst after it. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen.